No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World with Adam Kroom and Ralph Beliveau. Ralph, say hi. Hi. Uh, it's great to be with you again, and I hope your media world is at least as bizarre and interesting as mine. And we have a first for the pod today. We have our first guest, Dr. Lisa Funnel, who is an assistant professor in the Women and Women's Women's and Gender Studies Department at the University of Oklahoma, also the co-director for the Center for Social Justice. Her research focuses on the performance and intersection of identities as it relates to martial arts, Hollywood blockbusters, and the James Bond franchise. Lisa, welcome. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to, to have you here in, in a uh, semi-official capacity. Um, and uh, why, I, I don't know what the, because I know a lot about your work. So uh, what's the elevator speech you, you'd give someone about your approach to what you do, particularly with the James Bond stuff? Um, I study the representation and performance of gender and the way it intersects with other identities like race, class, um, sexuality, uh, in James Bond, and I really am interested in looking at the messages that the series puts forward about our values um, as as people in society. So, what are the dominant messages that we are taking in and that are socialized uh, into us through watching the most um, uh, the longest running film franchise in history? I was going to say most profitable, but there are billion dollar franchises right. now, so I can't really I can't make that claim anymore. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Is that particularly why that you think that it's a, or why you, why it's a good franchise for your research is just the longevity of the, of the franchise itself? Yeah, I mean there is no other franchise that spans five decades that has. I, what are we on Bond twenty five right now? Is is going into production, um, and it's some it's a, it's a great franchise to study because it goes from nineteen sixty two to today, and you can see generation after generation after generation of film goers watching and connecting with these films, and then looking at them over time, how they do change with history, with geopolitics in relation to feminist movements, other social movements. You can see the evolution of the Bond brand, and specifically as James Bond. Uh, interacts with and encounters characters who are reflecting these changes. And so does he change with the times? Does he remain the same, but the world around him changes? And what is the overall message being forwarded through these films about, um, I would just say heroic masculinity, but I would say maybe Anglo-American identity um, through them. Is it, uh, just out of curiosity, because one of the things that I'm thinking about is that there's of course, different ways to watch this stuff. Yeah. Um, so when you're thinking about the masculinity that's constructed in James Bond films, there's sort of this idea of toxic masculinity, and then there's the ideas of liberating masculinity. How do you think about that? Or how do you, and what do you think of the range of the way people consume that, that text? That's a really interesting question. Um, for me, as you were asking this question, I was thinking of a conversation I had with my students yesterday looking at issues of consent in James Bond. And I think it matters through the lens through which we're actually looking at these films and the time period because things that were, I would say, never acceptable for, for women 
at one period of time were considered more broadly socially acceptable. So you see early films in the James Bond franchise where he does sexually harass um, and and sexually coerce women into having sex with him. And there's the film Thunderball, and you have uh, the woman named Patricia Fearing. And you think about double entendres for a name. Her last name is Fearing because she fears James Bond, and he not only sexually harasses her, but he basically coerces her into having sex with him so that he won't tell on her to her boss for her to keep her job. Um, so there's a lot of really problematic imagery, and yet we have this broader idea that James Bond is this 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 lover and sort of this this person that women are just naturally attracted to. That he has this magnetic um, sort of sex appeal to him. But when you actually look at the films, there's some really problematic messages being conveyed through them. Um, about notions of masculinity, heteronormativity, heteronormativity, but also what heterosexual romantic conquest actually is. And even the notion of conquest, of occupying, in this case, women's bodies and claiming them, is incredibly problematic. And I think that is one of the dominant messages that gets internalized by those of us watching, that this is sort of the natural order of things and it's romanticized and, and it's shown as being sort of interesting and exciting. And this is how he saves the world because he needs to do this in order to sort of get his tipping point. But it's a really problematic message that is being conveyed through the Bond franchise. So how does how does a... Um because we're both media, we're, we're all media studies people. Yeah. Um, how could you, com how would you communicate that as you have had to, to a number of students so that they can go to it and simultaneously enjoy it? Because we never want to ruin the fun, but at the same time have a conscience about what they're consuming while they're consuming it. I tell my students all the time that pleasure when watching films is a complicated thing and that we like things that are problematic. And I think if, if I was to pick anything that I've consumed in the last week, I can tell you why it's problematic. I mean, this is what sort of what we do for a living. Like, we can tell you what's wrong with it, and yet we still can find space to enjoy things as we're watching it. And so I feel as though it's almost like giving them a license to still like things that are problematic, but also freeing themselves up to look at it through a critical eye or a critical lens. And I try to encourage or at least promote the reading of these films as, as a mode of media literacy. Um, the fact that we consume so much media, but we don't really have a lens to protect ourselves. We've never been taught how to think about media, how to critique media, or the implications of consuming this media. And so I teach my students that by looking at these films and understanding them and giving them critical tools, we can actually put that buffer there. We can protect ourselves and be a little bit more conscious about what messages we let in and what messages we sort of deflect and, and keep out while still watching things that we're still going to keep right. watching. Yeah. <laughs> we're still yeah, going to watch it. <laughs> often often think about the idea of, and, and usually the way that I talk about it in classes and things like that is to say, uh, some of you are really smart and can do this in one screening. I'm dumb. I need to watch something twice because part of what I want to do when I'm consuming something is to sort of see it without applying all the critical mm -hmm. apparatus, the critical lenses and things like that, you know, which you're always sort of, sort of halfway on anyway, but uh, sometimes to enjoy things that are kind of feeding into our fantasy projections, then, you know, to sort of like let go of that and indulge in the roller coaster ride itself, if nothing else, because I, I personally believe it's psychologically healthy to do that. Yeah. 
uh, but then at some point then realizing that you're in two different positions that you may be enjoying it, but at the same time there, there is, as you're saying, something deeply wrong with it. Yeah, and it's funny because I always have students um, contacting me. Have you seen this and what did you think about it? And I do go through that process of, it depends on what it is, okay? Because for about like 90%, I can just watch things. Although every now and then you watch something in the moment. And for me, sometimes, you know, blatant sexism, just it it just sets me off. Like I'm, I'm, I'm on that path already. But I have to literally sit down and think about, okay, now let me, let me put my critique lens on. And that's when I start sort of thinking and working through what I've just seen. But for the most part, I mean, sometimes, most of the time, we've watched movies together. So, I mean, you know this yeah. to be true that, I mean, we can just sort of sit there and we can watch it. And then afterwards, we sort of look at each other like, okay, now what, what, what did we just see? And yeah. how do we feel about it? And sort of snap into almost like professor media critic role. Right. And, but we can step in and out of those spaces. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I had a conversation with somebody earlier today and it occurred to me that, you know, Partly because, and this is this is some of the work that's been on. Um, um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the the, the podcast is, um, where he was talking about satire and how often satire is read based on the the perspective of the person watching it, right? So you watch the Colbert Report if you're on the right, then you're going to see somebody who's really sticking it to the liberals. If you're on the left, you're seeing somebody satirizing, you know, people on the right as media persona. And it occurred to me for a film like Get Out. For example, if 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 a white racist is watching Get Out, what are they seeing? How are they going to make sense out of what's there? You know, because that's got to go into um, the perspective that they bring. And a lot of what we do in, in teaching media is to try to get people to think about what are the implications of the stuff, not just for you as an individual, but for other people who are bringing their own individual perspective to what they're seeing. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the first moments when I actually thought about early on in my career, when I thought about the experiences of the person and the lens through which they view the world impact how they read it. I was doing my master's degree and I had a a friend who was also doing it um, and we came from different religious backgrounds and he was watching Passion of the Christ talking about it as being like like a good drama or action-oriented movie because he didn't have the same lens through which he was watching it. And it was probably one of the biggest like aha moments for me where I'm like, wait a second, like I have a very specific critical lens through which I view the world and your lens is different. And so what must it be like? What must it feel like to be in a culture that is um, dominated by Christian imagery? It's it's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's part of the legal system. It's part of our, 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 our imagery. It's part of our language. You know, Achoo, bless you. I mean, that's that's it's, it's a very specific uh, tradition that's being evoked there. And so what must it look like or feel like to engage in a culture when you're not part of that 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 group? And so for me, yeah, it's, it's one of sort of the big aha moments where I was like, OK, I get it now. Like, I get that we're seeing this from different lenses. And the, the, the I think the challenge then as scholars for us is we see films through our, our dominant perspectives, right? And, and through the tools and the skills um, that we've learned, how then do we become more expansive? How do we expand beyond conversation, right? Does that mean collaboration is the next step? 
collaborating with somebody who sees film or sees the world differently from you and trying to either blend those ideas or um, have on the one hand, it goes this way on the one hand, you know, on the other hand, it goes that way. How do we sort of, I don't know, how do we mobilize different lenses or how do we even encourage ourselves to see film and media and, and, and these broader texts with different lenses? Like, how do you take out your worldview lens and adopt another one? And that's a challenge, I guess, that we give our students is we're trying to teach you how to see these films in, in, a, in a range of different ways. And it's a challenge. It's an, and I think it goes against these broader notions of like taking film courses and media courses and journalism courses are easy. Right. Because yeah. it's one of the hardest things that you have to do is like change the way that you're like seeing the world. Mm -hmm. I think also getting it uh, out of just being a consumer mindset so that you're consuming it to kind of feed the media beast and, and all of that. But to, to realize the cultural impact that it has in terms of storytelling. And we're living in a time now. I mean, you, a lot of your work is with James Bond has such kind of a dominant presence. But now we're in a very fragmented media environment. So it's very hard to know the, the, the context that people are bringing to something like that when you're, you know, when you're talking about that where it's sort of, oh, well, you've seen blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, right? Which fails on, I'm, I'm convinced, everything except for the film The Breakfast Club. Because <laughs> everyone, everyone has seen the film The Breakfast Club. And that's, so that's like the universe, the ur text of, of Western America <laughs> in the 21st century is The Breakfast Club is this remnant of, of American culture. One thing I'd be, I'd be curious about is you write a lot about how geopolitics inform Bond movies over time. And you've even used this as a tool to sort of theorize what the future of Bond looks like. I'd be curious to know, in the world of Trump and Brexit, you know, how how are you viewing the future of uh, what 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 Bond may be giving us? It's a really good question. Um, I actually wrote an article with Klaus Dodds. Um, we do a, a lot of work together. He's a professor of geopolitics, and we wrote about what impact would Brexit and Trumpism have on on the world of James Bond, how would it impact things like travel? For instance, if there are travel bans, will James Bond be able to easily cross through airport, airports and, and train stations and go across borders freely and fluidly if, you know, um, the UK separates itself from the rest of Europe, where you can't just seamlessly make your way between countries? What might that look like? How then do you frame villainy um, in these films, is there a risk? Is there a danger in trying to make your arch villain maybe be aligned with broader nationalistic tendencies? Um, what is then the, the, the motive of this person and what implications, again, you have to think from the producer standpoint, might it have on people consuming or not consuming our text because James Bond is a global brand right now. Um, and so there are implications for where things are set, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and, and what is the, 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 the arch plan and the motivations, because messages are going to be sent. And I think it's an interesting thing, the way that the James Bond franchise has creatively reimagined geopolitics. So uh, for many people who might not be British or may have never gone to the UK, I think a lot of our understanding of Britain comes through media, right? And it comes through James Bond. And yet, when you look at Anglo-American relations and the way that they've been framed, 
it doesn't it's not necessarily like an accurate reflection of like if the US and the UK went to war, I doubt the USA would be like, hey, take all of our resources from the CIA and let this British agent go step in and save the world. And we're just here for backup. That probably would not happen in real life. And yet it creates this impression um, of, of this ongoing strength um, um, of the UK and specifically of Britain as we sort of see a, a diminishing of the British Empire. So it's creatively reimagining notions of, of, of power and creatively reimagining geopolitical relationships. And if you don't if you never have the opportunity to either, um, you know, take courses beyond that or if you don't have knowledge base beyond that, then films are, are these primary texts with which we see the world. And it's interesting. I always think about it like we live in a Harry Potter world. We live in a Lord of the Rings world where our students know more about those types of worlds than they might actually know about history and politics. Like you send the messages um to people where they are and, and they're in these very sort of fictitious and creative worlds. And then we go through this process of, through our fandom of trying to make these worlds a reality of having Harry Potter stores and having Harry Potter adventures um, in, in this world, sort of in, in the corporeal realm, right? In order to mirror these these fictitious worlds that, that, that we're consuming. There's also all those, all the offshoots like the LARPers and the... Mm -hmm. the uh, cosplay uh, dress-up events and yeah. um, I have this vivid memory of when I think Breaking Dawn was coming out and um, the fandom meant that you had an entire Barnes and Noble in the Chicago area full of you know 13 and 14 year old women mostly in prom dresses and it was just astounding to see to try to think about where how does that cultural interface work mm -hmm. between the fantasy projection that had been working through her books and then this this group that you know came together for the event most of whom didn't know each other they weren't coming in group they're sort of like one of those things where it was a bunch of people who'd read the same book who suddenly find each other and have this thing to talk about um, and it's just fascinating to see how that's kind of permeated out. Also, be, with that franchise in particular, that it was a, a, um, a franchise dominated by uh, women, both as constructors and consumers, until you get, I think, is it past the first film? Then I think it's men down the line, right? It's all I turtles so. from then on, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I've always thought that was that was kind of an interesting side effect of of that, like the complexity of the relationship between fan culture and popular culture. Well, let's jump real quick into another world, into the DC comics world. And I think comics have have really that, that that's a world that within the last decade has really started to take place, particularly within uh, mainstream media culture. Uh, with all the the movies that have come out, but the, the the news that I wanted to talk about specifically, and we had kind of circulated as we prepared for this podcast, was uh, Gal Gadot, who plays uh, Wonder Woman, saying that she would she would would refuse to do any more Wonder Woman um, sequels if Brett Ratner, who was in, who was involved again, Brett Ratner is a uh, Hollywood producer who has been accused by uh, several actors, Olivia Munn and others, uh, who have just, uh, and not to go into any of the details of the stories, I don't think they're, they're worth giving the time of day, but, but some, some really just creepy comments that he's made, things that he's done in front of people, um, you know, and uh, it, it seems to be the, the, the next uh, producer on, on this line of um, several men 
uh, both within Hollywood, but but also within uh, broader media uh, as well um, that have that have come out. Just be be curious to hear. I, f- I feel like we're we're really in an interesting time, and I'd just be curious to hear from both of you. You know, with this news specifically, uh, but maybe you know, coming at the end of this last five weeks and what we've seen sort of out of the the, the fall of the uh, the breaking story on on Harvey Weinstein. You know, are we at sort of an interesting inflection point within media? There's so much to say on this topic. I don't even know <laughs> where to start. Um, I think we're in an interesting moment where we were having the first significant public dialogue about sexual assault and sexual harassment um, and how it takes place in the workplace and how this is, even though this is sort of Hollywood's a microcosm and we can sit here and be sort of shocked um, at what is going on. This is the experience of so many people and especially women in the workplace. And so we're finally having a conversation and, and speaking publicly about things that have happened to us. Um, because there is such a culture of silence and there is a fear that if you speak up, um, repercussions are going to happen. And so it, it highlights the fact that power is, is, is at the core of what is going on here about being in a powerful position and being privileged in society and having a culture that not only enables you but protects you and lets you keep that position and then in in process it 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 silences people who are victims um of these types of of perpetrators one of the differences i think that's happening now is that there actually seem to be consequences yeah which is really unusual because uh previously this is something rebecca traster writes about in the in the in, in a piece that hopefully we'll get to talk about more in more depth at some point in the future, but that there there were no consequences. No. That it the, so it became public knowledge for a short period of time, but people weren't losing their jobs, they weren't losing their opportunities. There's something very different uh, that's happening now, where there just seem to be more consequences. And I think it becomes also a conversation about. It's hard to sort of, I, I don't want to misphrase this, but it becomes a conversation of who is speaking out and how much power and privilege do these people who are speaking out, like, are we taking this seriously because these are the white women of Hollywood who have a lot of power and a lot of following? Um, and what about all the other women who don't have that power and who don't have that much visibility? And why is it that it takes 18 women writing a letter coming forward against the showrunner of One Tree Hill to be believed? Um, why, why does it take 18? Why do we need these large quantities? And even then you still have the phrasing of, well, it's an accusation. Maybe it wasn't true. Why is it that we don't believe women and why is it that so many other women and specifically women of racial and ethnic minorities how come their voices aren't even being amplified through this process so i think there's a lot going on here about whose voices are being heard how these voices are treated but whose voices are not being heard and taken seriously um in 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 this in this in this area and it's interesting when we think about harvey weinstein um, I think he's only refuted one claim, and that was by Lapita Nwango. Is that how you say her name? Mm-hmm. And that was the only one that he's really sort of publicly com- come out and and denied. And I think that's also incredibly interesting mm-hmm. and very important. Just to highlight, just you know, yeah, 
Yeah, that's I, that, I think that's a very good point because I think what's happening in the situation with Wonder Woman is it's really a question of how much power, how, how power is being negotiated in terms of what, you know, what the, what the performer is able to do at this point. Um, and I mean, it's it's a question of how much power as an actor do you have in a general sense? I mean, it's the myth of individuality. And I think that's how power is maintained in Hollywood is this impression that actors have all of this power to pick and choose their roles. And um, even that the, the, the characters that we see are kind of their personality anyways. This is what is forwarded. And so we blame individuals and we still hear people blaming these victims for, for being part of this industry, why didn't you speak out? It's it's incredibly complicated when you are being harassed and assaulted. Um, but what happens is when we focus and when we victim blame, we allow not only the perpetrators to maintain their power, but we let the actual system of power stay in place um, because we're not questioning all the other people who were involved. Like, yes, it was Harvey Weinstein, and I think we need to hold individuals accountable, and I'm 100% for that. But what about all the other people who were surrounding him, who knew that this was going on, who sent um, um, actors to go and audition, who maintained the system the way that it was? And how can you sit there and, and think that it is, you know, sort of this this joke as we laugh along, like, oh, we, you know, it's just Harvey Weinstein and we laugh along. Even that laughter is problematic and naturalizes uh, and normalizes the system. And I think that's something that we also need to start. Like, let's not just be, again, I think it's, it goes to that point of like, the details matter, but also let's make sure that we just don't get s stopped on those details. Like we have to keep our eyes looking upward to the entire system of, of power. And I, I feel like this is the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more to come, but I don't want us to become desensitized because of the first um, 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 uh, a number of men who've come, who, who've sort of been, uh, who are being uh, hopefully held accountable. Um, let's 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 go through them all and not not and not lose that. Um, um, it, it, not not become desensitized. I, I can't think of another way of putting it. Like not become complacent or just be like, oh, it's just another scandal. When no, th these are people's lives. That, you know that have been completely altered it's not just your livelihood or your your craft or your art it is your life so do you see it moving into other media industries also i think this is taking place everywhere and so then the question is um and and we've seen for instance we've seen gymnasts come forward talking about being sexually assaulted by by the, and harassed by their coaches i think we're going to see it um start to pop pop up and bubble up um, in, in, in different places or different industries. Um, but also we can't forget how much courage it takes for a person, and that includes you know women, people who are gender nonconforming, men coming forward and sharing their stories. And I don't think that we should also have the expectation that everybody is going to share their story as well because you are working through your own personal trauma. Um, so it's a really complicated space, but I have... Um, so much respect um, and empathy for people who are coming forward and sharing their stories publicly because I'm sure that they are terrified inside of, of, of doing that. Well, and they know that they're not necessarily going to be believed. That's our culture, yeah. right? We don't believe victims when they come forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, again, that is the system that we have that allows power to you know, maintain its 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 positioning. It, it's it's the way that things have always been. And 
I think we need to ask ourselves questions in our culture. Like, if this is the way it's always been, are we okay with that? And and I guess for me, it's that notion of specifically when I talk to men, I'm like, don't wait till you have a daughter to look at the system and sit there and be like, there's a problem with the system. My daughter shouldn't go through it. Maybe we start viewing women and people who are gender nonconforming as being human beings and then utilizing that as our stepping stone rather than having people who you know or who are, say, a function of yourself, um, having their possible um, uh, harassment um, be your concern because you're not defining, again, you're not defining them as people. You're defining them in their relationship status to Mm -hmm. you. So how do we then shift our culture where we actually start viewing specifically women as human beings? And for me, it comes down to even the narratives that we tell. I I teach a course on action women. And so uh, we look at how women are presented. I'm always like, are the women getting the human treatment? And the human treatment is the white, middle class, heteronormative, um, um, uh, able-bodied, cisgender representation of a man. Like that's how human beings are, are, are being presented. And anything that goes from the status quo is considered an other and is defined by their othering status. Mm-hmm. So why? So, so if we actually start putting uh, representing women and, and people of color um, and, and people who are gender nonconforming and, and people who are LGBTQ um, as human beings first, I think that then changes the way that we treat people in our society mm-hmm. because the culture is, is, is sending us messages that we're internalizing, but it's teaching us how do we look at other people and value them and do we see the humanity in others and if not, why? Mm-hmm. I think there's also the, the kind of the whole context of power that exists. It's so easy to stop thinking about that, mm-hmm. to stop thinking that power is already in existence in all of these contexts. Yeah. And it, because it's complicated, it's really hard to think about. Um, once you kind of get away from either yourself or you go from being in the, you know, whatever, the real world, and then mm-hmm. you go into the, 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 the fantasy projections and the other ways that we um, entertain ourselves, that there are still conditions of power that exist there that are informing back and forth across that boundary. Um, And it's just, it's a hard thing to keep hanging on to, particularly in a lot of cases where they're very specifically about questions of power, about competition, about Mm -hmm. uh, being able to be the author, being able to define how the story gets told. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you're talking about Gal Gadot, the reason why she had power to speak up is because the studio didn't sign her to a multi-picture deal like other actors have been signed. So in many ways, there was a devaluing of her, just like there was a devaluing of Patty Jenkins and her capacity and everything's had to be renegotiated or negotiated uh, for the sequel since then. And that's where you can see them claiming that power. But she had that power because of the system that was in place that devalued her. And I think that um, her choice is a, is, is a very good one. If you have this moment where you can really make a statement and of course, on a personal level, I don't think I'd want to work with somebody that I, you know, that that has been known to sexually harass other people in a series that's supposed to be about specifically female empowerment, female strength rising up, having this opportunity to speak out and, and put your foot down, I think sends a very powerful and timely message. And this is where the stars person and and sort of the persona sort of 
start to start to clash because you have Gal Gadot as a human being making these decisions. And then you have the Wonder Woman character, um, which is how she is now sort of publicly known, sort of colliding and converging where she is sort of enacting Wonder Woman in, in the real world rather than just in this 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 fictitious world. Yeah, it's always, I uh, have had occasion because of something that's on after it on MeTV. They still screen the old Wonder Woman series. Nice. And it's it's kind of awesome to see that. You know, in, in uh, several decades on, to see how the that particular that that character that had all this potential for liberatory possibilities can still be constrained by like the network TV machine. Yeah, it's just kind of amazing. Uh, one of the episodes I saw recently was her coming into contact with uh, a little kid who had the same potential. So uh, so she was like basically training this girl to actually exercise her power, but they had to hide it so that the girl wouldn't so that the girl wouldn't get, you know, picked on by um, by actually it was Harry Gardino was the person who would have been picking on her wow. in this particular episode. So it was pretty fantastic stuff. I want to give a quick opportunity. Are there any any books that we need to be promoting of yours? Anything that you want to name drop? There are at least five people who listen to this podcast right now. <laughs> and we want to make sure that we have a 100% buyership of any guest that comes on that, that something is purchased. So anything that we need, we need to be promoting that's, that's uh, upcoming from you or, or just came out? Wow. Um, I have a bunch of books. If you'd like to purchase any of them, I would love that. I have, um, with Klaus Dodds, we wrote The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond, published by Palgrave. Um, I also edited an anthology called um, For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond, which has 28 essays on feminism and femininity in James Bond. I have a book that I wrote on um, Chinese uh, warrior women. Um, I think it's called Warrior Women, Gender, Race, and the Transnational Chinese Action Star. And that actually won the Emily Toth Award for Best Work in Women's Studies Yay. from the PCA-ACA. That's the Popular Culture Association. And Ralph and I are both members of mm -hmm. that. A couple anthologies on Chinese film. Lots of stuff. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate you having me. Thank yeah, it's you been for great for you to come me. in and talk about this. Thank you. So all you have to do is go to Amazon. Yeah. And Google do, me. Google literally. Funnel, F-U-N-N-E-L-L, and yes. the amazing world of James Bond being thought about from such an intellectually sophisticated perspective can be yours. If the so, price is right. If the price is right. <laughs> so, well, thank you for uh, joining us here uh, at the end of the world. Yes. It was great to have you, and we'll see you next week.